loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired to create a deeper life to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Margot Folks. Margot is the founder and president of On Target Consulting, Inc., a firm specializing in helping organizations and individuals act strategically, improve their performance, and achieve their business goals. Margot works with clients to solve problems of productivity, morale, and innovation. Author of Leading Through Loss, How to Navigate Grief at Work, Margot also coaches leaders on how to create a more compassionate culture by acknowledging and speaking openly about grief and loss in the workplace. After the death of her son, Jimmy, in 2014, Margot created Salt Water, an online community that provides a safe harbor for those who are grieving the death of someone dear to them. Welcome, Margot. Thank you, Cheryl. I've been really looking forward to our conversation. So glad to have you here. Uh, you know, this this issue um, will we'll, uh, back up to how you came to write it in a minute, but this issue of how uh, workplaces deal with grief is just so, so important. And uh, I'm glad to hear your voice added to all of the uh, all of the voices trying to say, hey, human beings work <laughs> work in businesses. We have to do better, huh? Exactly. And we, we take our sadness to work, whether it's through a death and a loss or anything that's happening for us in our lives, a divorce, an illness, you know, a move, anything like that. We bring it all to work. And so often I think our culture acts as though we don't, or that we can just ignore it and pretend it's not there. Well, and of course, that's a microcosm of the fact that it's, it is improving, I think, or maybe I'm just saturated with the people that are trying to improve it. But, um, you know, the culture has not been good at addressing grief, knowing what to say or do. And of course, then workplaces won't know either. Would you agree? I would. I would. And and I think one of the things that makes it challenging, as I'm sure you've seen, is that we love lists um, as, a, as a culture for whatever reason. And there are a lot of lists about what not to say. And I remember seeing those early on after my son died and thinking, you know, if my loved ones saw these, they would never say anything because all they would think about is, well, I'm not supposed to say this and I'm not supposed to say that. And then it's hard to know what to say in that case. And, you know, what, of course, I talk to a lot of grievers who've heard the ridiculous to the sublime, right? Um, but, but what tends, but, but what tends to stick is, um, I don't really know what to say, but I care about you. Um, you know, nobody knows what to say. It's, it's unspeakable sometimes, but not acknowledging it is worse. 
Exactly. And, and when someone asks me, I always say, say something that, that no matter how much we stumble, what the other person really hears is I care about you. I, I don't know what to say and I'm going to may get it all wrong, but I'm, I'm here and I love you. And I'm, and I'm so sorry this has happened. And I think that the, the, not like you said, the acknowledging it of it and the willingness to, to face it and to say that, you know, you're sorry, you're, you know, you're here for the other person is much more important than the exact words. I have a feeling you and I would agree that actually having been through a very significant loss, which we both have, uh, frees you up. It's better you'd, you'd rather try than not try, even if you don't know what that person will happily receive. Um, we know how it feels to not be communicated with and to be avoided and, you know, all that other stuff that comes along with it. The mistake is better than that, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I don't know if this is true for you, but the other thing I learned is that after my son died, I thought that would teach me what to say because I had had arguably one of the worst possible losses in losing a child. And yet I still find so often that I, I connect with someone on saltwater and their loss is so devastating that I, I find myself struggling for words. And so it is a reminder, like you said, to just, to just show up and say something and do the best you can, that none of us get it right. Right. We're all stumbling a bit in the dark. You know, I, I interviewed uh, someone once who had lost a child and her mother in, the, in a very short period of time. And she said the most meaningful thing that anyone said to her is, I am trying to imagine how you must feel, as opposed to I can't imagine. And mm -hmm. I mentioned that once on the show and the person I was speaking with that day said, oh, my God, I would have hated to hear that. So it's a good example, <laughs> you know, to me, someone someone trying to imagine their way into my reality would be so comforting. But for that person, it was it was not. So, um, yeah, we have to be willing to be mistaken. But let's talk about how you came to be involved with your with your son dying. Can you tell tell me about your son? I want to get to know him a little bit. Sure. Um, so Jimmy used to say that he was a type B personality in a type A family because his his mother, his father and his younger sister are all fairly intense. And he was the most mellow of the four of us. Hmm. Um, he was always just a very easygoing kid. Um, and the sort of human that when you put him in a room with other people, he was not the life of the party or the center of attention, but he had this quiet way of drawing people to him, um, in part because he was just very funny. And mm -hmm. but in in a sort of self-deprecating, gentle way, you know, he didn't make fun of other people. Um, he would just say things that were that were very funny and uniquely him. And, and that it sounds as if that kind of you're talking about it as if it's it was his personality before illness. That was just him. Yes, that was the essence of him. And I think it's also what allowed him to navigate the eight years that he he navigated brain cancer in a way that 
that drew both everyone from his doctor and nurse practitioner to the other, the nurses and the other people that he interacted with, that he really drew them to him and kind of enfolded them into the circle. And that, and one of the gifts that he left us was all of these connections Mm. and these friendships that formed, like I'm still friends with his social worker, his hospice nurse, his primary oncologist, his nurse practitioner, because he created these relationships that went deeper than patient care provider. It's interesting too. I don't speak with that many people, um, which is a little bit interesting considering that I do this every week, right? I don't Mm -hmm. speak with that many people who navigated an illness with the person who eventually died for as long as you and I did. And, um, you know, I, I kind of, uh, I can't imagine actually uh, what that process would have been like shorter. Obviously, I would have done it. But um, so much happens over those years, including building relationships and communities and um, getting a kind of a solid uh, base to support grief. I, I felt it made a huge difference how much time we were grappling with her, the possibility of her death. Was that true for you? I mean, it's different with a child for sure, because we could have adult conversations about it. But what do you think about the amount of time? That's so interesting, Cheryl, because I've always considered the amount of time a true blessing because Jimmy's particular kind of brain cancer when it comes back, which his did two years after he was diagnosed, most of those children die in three to nine months afterwards. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the fact that we got six years was an incredible gift. But I never thought about the way that it also allowed us to pull in all these people into our orbit and, and build, like you said, build this base of support and understanding and connection that we wouldn't have time to have built had he only, you know, had he only battled, as they say, for two years instead of eight. We have we have a quite a bit in common, that sense of um, because my wife had a very short prognosis also. And then you're kind of I don't want to say you're living on borrowed time, but you kind of have to learn to live with uncertainty, don't you? You do. You do. And and one of the things that I learned from Jimmy um, was that ability to live, as he called it, to live between scans. Mm. So he would get MRIs of his brain every three months. And I remember once on a long walk asking him if he worried about the upcoming scan, you know, in between. And he said, no, mom, I don't. He said, I go in and get the scan and I worry until we meet with Dr. Nicholson. And then if he says that everything is good, then I put it out of my mind for the next 90 days. And if he says that there's something concerning on it, then I trust you and dad and Dr. Nicholson to figure out what we're going to do. And I remember thinking he was 15, 16 Mm -hmm. at the time. And I thought, wow, that's pretty amazing. I think I'm going to try to work on doing that. And I don't (laughs) think I mastered it as well as he did, because I certainly worried in between but I did have long periods of time where I would just think it is what it is. 
And he's not mm-hmm. symptomatic right now at that point. So I'm just going to try to live in the moment. And the scan will come when the scan comes. And whatever's there is going to be there. There's nothing I can change about that. You know, what stands out a bit is that you actually, you know, with me, it was a matter of how do I learn to surrender to my loved one's decisions, right? And not mm-hmm. um, give her whatever she asks for with feedback, but really back her up 100% about her decisions. But it occurs to me that if you're someone's parent, I mean, he was trusting you to make those decisions that were not on behalf of yourself. And that's a whole different wrinkle. And I wonder if you had to kind of get to a place of sureness inside to make those kind of choices. Definitely. And and I was the one who did the bulk of the research because I had the bandwidth to do it. And the part of the way I dealt with that is we had a very large team of what I called Jimmy's second opinion doctors. And so our doctor, his primary doctor, Dr. Nicholson, was incredibly wonderful about working with other leading experts in the field. So when something would show up on one of his scans and we needed to change treatment, for example, he and I would reach out to five, six, seven other doctors and they would weigh in on the scans and the treatment. And so I was helping to orchestrate that, but at the same time, I felt like I had, you know, the best possible array of opinions weighing in. And then, you know, we would defer to Dr. Nicholson's judgment if there was a disagreement, but it really allowed us to to think through all the options and and get different perspectives on things. Mm-hmm. You know, I was imagining as I was reading your book that, uh, there's got to be a personal workplace story. You know, you you lived with illness for eight years, and I know how that impacted. I mean, it completely changed my work, even though I was already a therapist. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm a grief counselor now, so <laughs> there you go. But um, the impact on work must have captured you to have written a book on the impact at work. And I just wondered what the story is behind that. And then maybe you could share a little bit of the book before we go to break. Sure. So I did not return to work immediately after Jimmy died because after on the way home from the celebration of life, my mother fell ill And over the course of the next year, her health continued to decline. And she died almost a year after Jimmy did. And so I, between her illness and just dealing with the death of Jimmy, it was more than I could handle to think of starting to consult again. So in some ways, the impetus for the book came from other people, from talking to folks that I connected with on Saltwater or other people that I knew who were grieving a loss. And that was really what what led me to, to, you know, to write the book. But I have found now that I've been back at work now since 2017, that I talk more openly about grief and loss now and use those words in situations that I might never have used them because Mm -hmm. of what I've been through. And what I found that it leads to is oftentimes people, clients will come up to me at a break or, you know, at a, at a quiet moment and will share one of their losses with me because I've opened the door to that conversation. That's the bottom line too, isn't it? 
to to have it be so integrated into um you know the workplace personality almost that it's um it's open uh that that comes from having it constantly be there not from some you know responding to a, an emergency thing yeah yeah so let's let's hear a little bit from the book and then we'll go to break okay um this is from the the conclusion grief is somewhere in every zoom call and every meeting room whether known or unknown acknowledged or ignored one employee may be mourning the death of a family member another may be missing a close coworker who's died or taken another job still another may be going through a divorce or serious illness a grieving employee can in time re- return to a former level of pr- productivity with a deepened respect appreciation for and loyalty to their organization but only if they receive the support and acknowledgement they need during their worst days so often what makes this possible is the small but important interactions that happen dozens of times a week between the bereaved employee and their manager and their coworkers the unscripted opportunities to be supportive to create space for the griever's feelings and to ensure they have support these are the moments that matter in a workplace I did the math once on how many people I was curious when I'm just walking down the street looking at folks, you know, coming the other way, what on average could I expect uh what percentage of those people might be grieving a loss? These things fascinate me. Um and and I I calculated it this was way before COVID, so that is not a factor in this calculation. I calculated it to be roughly half and wow. and so if i'm not great at mathematics i could be a little off but it's a lot right and then with covid it was everyone was suffering some kind of loss and so the idea that that is not in any way acknowledged in our world in our work world particularly it seems even more off track than usual don't you think yes definitely I do agree. We'll we'll talk more about that when we get back and and just how specifically grief and loss gets integrated into a workplace because I think many people say oh god one more thing to do or whatever but actually I think it would probably reduce a lot of troubles. Uh so we'll come back to that in a minute. Listeners, you'll find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. And to find Margot folks, you can go to ontargetconsulting.net. Be back soon. Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com/goodgrief 
That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Resiliency is the human capacity to lean into individual and collective strengths with compassion and grit when faced with the challenges of lived experience. Join host Elaine miller Karras for Resiliency Within, a program of hope and healing designed to inspire you to integrate wellness into your life, your family, and your community. In challenging times, you'll want to tune in every week. Resiliency Within can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Margot Folks about the loss of her son, Jimmy, and the book she wrote after his death to guide businesses towards a better response to grief leading through loss. And, um, you know, I, I guess for you, it's sort of that experience melded with the, with the business consulting you do, and you became kind of compelled by what doesn't happen in workplaces. And what stood out in your book overall, I'd say, is um, this sort of constant encouragement to actually talk about it. That's the first step, right? <laughs> to, to actually say grief and loss and how are you doing and how can I help? Um, but I'm imagining many workplaces would resist on the level of we're so busy we don't really have time to you know take into account people's losses or uh what do you reply to them if you ever get that kind of that's an imagining on my part do you get that kind of um hesitation and if so how do you how do you address it so i do get that hesitation and i think the yeah, and I, I definitely get that hesitation. And my response to that is that it is not, it's essentially like the genie in the bottle. You, you can't put it back in the bottle. And so if you don't allow it in the building, then the conversations are about it are going to take place somewhere else. And even if what you're talking about is, a, is an employee who's grieving a death, right, someone like you or me, that everyone else in the in the workplace is watching how the leader is handling that situation. Mm-hmm. And even if they don't really know what to say or do, it, they're looking to the boss to figure it out. 
And if it's getting ignored, they're also thinking to themselves, well, if I lose someone I love, this is what's going to happen to me. I'm going to come back to work after my three or four days of bereavement leave, which is what we give in this country. And no one's going to say anything. And the boss is going to pretend like nothing happened. And so I go at it sometimes from the approach of this is costing you far more than if you simply acknowledged what was happening. Well, I loved how you broke down, you know, the amount of time it takes to train a new person, you know, the uh, because uh, I've had, believe it or not, many people I've worked with who are, who were grieving a loss or dealing with an illness, um, go back to work and, and um, you know, everything was fine before they left. When they go back, they end up getting fired or laid off or whatever and treated badly uh, as if they have to be at full capacity immediately. Um, but of course, if that happens, if you lose the employee who will within a very brief time, really, you know, be able to do what they did before, you've saved a lot of money. I, m money arguments usually work, don't they? Yes. I mean, it's, it, sometimes feels a bit icky to approach it that way when I do, but it, but it is the truth that, you know, it is so much less expensive to retain a valuable employee, even if they are less productive for a period of time than it is particularly right now to go out and try and find a new person because you have the cost of just the search and the hiring that person. And then you have the period of time they need to ramp up to the level that the, a, the a former employee was operating at. So yes, there's absolutely a cost to it. The other thing I would say, and I, I feel this is generally true, that the um, mutual loyalty that used to exist in workplaces, um, somehow that value got lost. And, uh, and so I think workplaces consider workers interchangeable. And, you know, there's, there's not a sense of uh, like there was for for my parents, for instance, that um, if they were a good employee and they and they you know did their best, they it would be a lifelong relationship. That seems very missing to me. The idea that that's actually a value that's um, that's important, and of course, what that leads to is jobs do become interchangeable and people leave easily. Yes, and I and I think that's really reflected in the language that you hear far too many corporate leaders using. You know, for example, when they talk about layoffs, instead of talking about the fact that these are humans with lives and families and mortgages losing their jobs, they use language like right-sizing, downsizing, cost-cutting. In instead of saying these, you know, these people will not have jobs after we are done with this reduction here. And so I do think that's that's very true. But what's so interesting to me is that we're still in a period where, whether it's because a lot of folks have left the workforce or because we're still in a, in a place where there haven't been that many layoffs, so there's, there's still a lot of full capacity, um, 
it's so many of my clients are struggling to find people to take open positions. Mm-hmm. And and so it's fascinating to me when I run across a situation where someone is not doing all they can to keep their best people because it isn't easy to replace them, especially right now. Absolutely. You know, I, I've, I've mentioned before a, a client I had who um, had a sudden loss of her significant other and um, her workplace this stands out because it's probably the one time in the 30 or 40 years that I've done this work that, that I heard a story like this. Uh, her workplace called and said, come back when you're ready. And when you come back, nothing will be expected of you. Mm-hmm. If you. If you do something, fine. If you don't, you'll just be there so we can come give you a hug every once in a while. That's really, really unusual. You'd agree, right? Yeah, <laughs> and I would agree. What I what I noticed um, hearing her talk about that process is how much more quickly she was able to be productive because she had that support. Because yes. of the because of the freedom mm-hmm. to just sit there and cry, which I think she did for you know, a month or something. Um, but eventually that that moment of just com- being completely undone passed. And um, I happen to know she worked at that at that company for decades after that. you know that that will build the kind of loyalty you can't buy. Uh, and yeah. it doesn't go on that long. It's not that big a chance to, to take. It was a small company too, which, you know, I'm sure that that put a load on everyone else, but they were willing to carry that. It, which is so, what, what a beautiful way to handle it. Um, yes. I mean, I just, I think that's a, that's remarkable that they did it, but it's also a beautiful example of what's possible. Because when I, what I noticed when I interviewed folks for the book was that I don't think I talked to anyone who said, I have to go back to work just for the paycheck. They they wanted to go back to work. And in some cases, it was because they loved their work and it was, yes, it was hard, but they wanted to go back. In other cases, it was because it was a, an escape, if you will, from their grief where they could be somewhere where they didn't have to talk about the loss or were so busy they could not think about it for a period of time. But I think a lot of people go back to work quite willingly. And it's about allowing them to be a little bit less productive or to give them some flexibility. You know, one of the examples I often use is maybe they don't have to make as many phone calls and you get someone else to cover their phone calls to customers, for example, and allow them to do a bit more spreadsheet or report writing for a period of time. As they, as they kind of, you know, adjust to being back in the workplace. But I think there's so many ways to accommodate someone who's grieving. And it's so important because, as you said, I think they, they want to get back to productivity. They want to start figuring out how they're going to rebuild their lives now in the face of this loss. And work is such an important piece of that. Also, one thing I notice as a grief counselor is that... Um, 
you're you're looking for some anything that's somewhat familiar because basically you're bushwhacking right i mean mm-hmm. you 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 don't know the territory and often people even people that are very dissatisfied with their jobs won't leave them immediately because they need some kind of anchor that makes life slightly more familiar but i i wanted to ask you um talk a little bit about obviously you work with management level uh, folks at companies. Um, I think there is, uh, and tell me if if you've seen this, there is a kind of delineation that has to do with class. Um, you know, if, if someone does need to work, you know, uh, or, or not eat, um, to me, that's, that person needs even more support and my perception is maybe is less likely to get it even than than a person at a higher level. What do you think about that? I think that's true. I, I wonder in some cases how much of that is a function of the job. So, for example, one of the people I interviewed in the book, um, Janelle um, Cinquini, she's a high school teacher. And... As a, as a high school teacher, she said, you're on in front of 30 students. And so if you have a moment where you get sad, there you are. You're either teaching or not teaching. There's sort of no middle ground. And I think sometimes with other jobs in that category, too, it's just more – the flexibility is more challenging, mm. too. You know, that you sure. can't – you, you know, it, COVID notwithstanding – when you're teaching high school or you're repairing an airplane, you can't do it from home. So there's, there's a challenge in there that's built into the job that gets, you know, certainly gets more complicated by, by class, by the need to work, et cetera. Right. I, I agree with that. Of course, I'm, I'm laughing a little to myself because if, if there's anywhere that, we need to pay more attention to social emotional learning, including how to deal with grief and loss. It's the classroom. <laughs> so also part of me is thinking teachers have to keep all of that out when in fact, perhaps they could be modeling. Yes, exactly. Perhaps, well, and- perhaps they could be teaching what, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that does, for instance, my kids are at a private school that does put a lot of attention into that, but it does seem as if, um, you know, it's very expensive, right? <laughs> In some way, um, it's not integrated into most public education. I think that's true. Um, yeah, I do think that's true. I, I, what was so beautiful about about Janelle's learnings from this was that she said she found after her brother died that that she it taught her to say something to her students. So there's a lovely story in the book about a a young man in one of her classes whose father dies and he is the one who finds the body. And he comes back to school fairly shortly thereafter. And she said, I thought, I think it was in part because he didn't know where else to go. And that was his safe place was to be at school. 
Mm-hmm. And so she knelt down next to the desk and she just said how happy she was that he was back and he was here and how sorry she was about her his father. And she told me, I never would have known to say that to him if I hadn't been through my own huge shattering loss. And so I do think that's one of the ways too it gets in the classroom is that not that I wish that on anyone, but I think the the best teachers take that experience and then they do model it with their students. Yes. And it's, it is interesting. You know, I, I was raising children when my wife died. They're, they're pretty comfortable in this area to the point where I believe their friends feel it, that they're safe people to go to when calamity strikes. Would I wish that on them? No, of course I wouldn't. But it's a kind of experience that comes from exposure that um, I think it is possible to expose people uh, without them having calamitous experience. Of course, there's always a depth a, a greater depth when you've lived it, but we. This is a teachable skill, don't you think? It's just that yes. people avoid it. <laughs> yeah. No, I do. Th- I do think that's true. I do think that's true, and I also think too, like anything else, it comes from the top. So the principal at the high school, for example, told Janelle when she went back to work after her brother died, "I will sub for you with a moment's notice." So if you are having a, an hour, a day, an afternoon where you just feel like you have to get out of here, you just tell me and I'll come take your class. And she said, I never once asked her to do it, but it was such a gift to know that she was there for me. So I do. It's also, too, I think about culture. Yeah. And, then, and, you know, the way the teachers treat each other and the principal and, and not that it's not there, but I think that's also an important piece of it, too have it spoken. Uh, There was a study once where they had two groups of children and they gave uh, all going for dental work and they gave half of them a button that stopped the drill uh, and the other half didn't have it. And the the kids who had the the button tended not to ever ever press it, but they used less painkiller, less Novocaine, we're able to sit still, you know, I think that's yeah. true with adults too, that if you're not under pressure to have to perform and make sure you don't cry and all of that, right. it, it actually is very relaxing. You know, your, your need for that tends to go down. That's what you're describing, aren't you? Yes, absolutely. It's that, it's that space to know that you can get up from your your desk, your workstation, wherever, and go outside for a few minutes. And it probably makes you need it less than if you sit there thinking, I can't get up until my official break or until lunchtime. And then all you can think about is how much you need to probably. You know, I, I'm thinking on the side about um, the impact it could have if if grief and loss are integrated into a work environment, if if there's education about what goes on with people who are in grief and loss, then even the people who haven't experienced it yet, of course they will someday, 
And they'll have a little more education because the thing that seems the most troubling with my clients is some some loss hits them and they don't understand what's what's normal in loss, like not being able to think and losing things and, you know, all of these, they're right. disturbed, um, but it's perfectly predictable. Um, so maybe it could have that side benefit too, kind of teaching for the future for everyone. Let's go to our second break. We'll come back and talk about that more after the break. Uh, I can be found at weatheringgrief.com or the Good Grief host page. And my guest, Margo, can be found at ontargetconsulting.net. Back after the break. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins looks at how natural healing and biological dentistry can safely and effectively treat most health problems. You'll hear about the innovations in both traditional and alternative medicine therapies with doctors and dentists, along with discussions with chiropractors, medical experts, homeopaths, naturopaths, and energetic healers. It's great to have all the best information in one place. And Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins brings it all together. Listen Thursdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I've been talking with Margot Folks about her book, Leading with Loss, um, which came to be after the illness and death of her son. And Margot, we were talking about the um, the importance, you know, I, I like what you say. I heard, in, uh, you've mentioned it today, and I heard an interview you did that uh, mentioned this as well, um, telling people what to say instead of what not to say. 
And so I wonder if you could give listeners an idea what you recommend to people um, to say and do when uh, there's been a, a loss in the workplace. Just kind of run that down a little bit. So I think one of the, so the first and most important thing is once, let's say this is an employee that, that has lost someone significant, the most important thing is to reach out immediately and probably in multiple ways because they may not be able to take a phone call, for example. So whether you use Slack or text or email, but to connect with that person and to find out a bit about what's happened, whatever is appropriate um, that they want to tell you to see how you can be immediately helpful, um, to find out whether or not it's appropriate to attend a service if there is one, because I think it's important to show up and bear witness in those situations if the employee wants people from his or her workplace there. And then also to reassure that person that you and the team will cover their workload so that they don't need to think about work while they are dealing with whatever they're dealing with. So I think initially that's very important. And, you know, some people may not get a lot of time off. Some people may get more. But at the point at which that person is ready to return to the work or has may not be ready, but is looking at returning to work, there's a, a kind of a second significant conversation that needs to happen about that reentry. Because there, there are ways to make it just a little bit easier and they include things like offering to have that person come in for maybe just an hour because you know that the rest of the team is probably going to want to say something or give them a hug and being back at work is going to be hard. And it may help to get a bit of that out of the way before they, they officially come back to work. And then when they do, I think returning towards the end of a week where they work maybe a day or two before they come back, you know, full time, five days a week can also help. And it's again, it, those are the kind of the things that will really help with that. But also, as you said, just checking in and asking how they're doing and what would be of help to them in that today, in that given moment. Mm. Because as you also know, our needs change over time. And what we need when we first get back to work can be completely different than what we might need a month or six months or a year after returning. You know, I have this fantasy, Margot. I just saw this meeting in my mind where, you know, the boss and the employer are in their weekly meeting. I mean, who doesn't have a weekly meeting in a big company, right? And right. that that every single time the first check-in is how are you doing? How's how's your grief doing at work? You know, that, to just make it a normal part of conversation for two minutes and then go on. But what an amazing difference that might make to a person to know that they're they're actually going to be checked in with at a consistent um, on a consistent basis as they go as they evolve in their grief. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and one of the interesting questions that someone posed recently on a podcast was, but what if the boss isn't any good at those kind of conversations? And they know they're not, they're not comfortable. It, it's just not their wheelhouse, but they want to be supportive. One of the other things I recommend is getting a point person 
for the person who's grieving at mm-hmm. someone that they choose and they feel comfortable with. Because sometimes it also helps to have another person go to the boss and say, hey, you know, Margo's having a really hard time right now. And I think you should check in with her. I wonder if maybe she could leave early on Friday. I think she needs, you know, a bit of change in her workload, things like that, where there's also just one other person checking in with the grieving employee too. Kind of, kind of go between, but I'll tell you, it does always stun me because I hear about a lot of workplaces that I'm not in, right? (laughs) Right. Uh, A very unusual career that way. Um, But I hear about a lot of workplaces and the idea that people get hired as managers when they do not have people skills doesn't make any sense to me. But that's a side issue. (laughs) I understand. (laughs) But still, you know, it does seem like part of the job to get a little better at saying, how are you doing? I would agree. But I (laughs) but I think we often get promoted for our skill set around whatever we're, you know, we're working on, like, you know, great salespeople get, do really well in their jobs and then get promoted to sales manager, sales director, vice president of sales. And, you know, and some may not have those skills. I'm well aware. (laughs) You are. (laughs) And, and, you know, this is not, I, I mean, in a way it is about, um, integrating grief and loss into a workplace. Because if, in fact, there's a whole lot of promoting on the basis of, of, of um, tactile skills, uh, it stands to reason that workplace won't be really great at this stuff. Unless the person accidentally has, has loss in their own life, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it also goes back to kind of where you and I started too, which is that we don't even as humans get great training on how to support each other. And, and so we don't always know like what questions to ask, Mm -hmm. you know, like if, if you think about one of the greatest gifts is to have someone say, just like you did at the beginning of the interview, tell me about your son, tell me about your wife. I mean, it's such an incredible gift, but people are afraid to do it because they might make you sad or remind you that they're dead, which of course, you know, we're thinking about it all the <laughs> time anyway, I don't think, right? I mean, unless I lose my memory, I, I won't be forgetting that, right? <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. Um, and, you know, one of my favorite, favorite stories in the book comes from a woman named Linda Knight Crane, um, who works who works at... Um, uh, Six Flags. And she was sitting at her desk one day and she was crying. And one of her coworkers said to her, you know, when I hear you crying, I don't know what to do. Do you want me to come in and give you a hug? Do you want me to bring you some coffee? And Linda said, no, just let me cry. I'm going to be doing it a lot. So just, just let me go basically. But she said it was so lovely to know that this this colleague was not afraid to ask, even though she didn't need anything. Absolutely. And I I also I'm remembering a guest I had whose son had died at, I think, 21. And he he was doing a lot of speaking. And for a, a long period of time after, he would start every speech with strangers, right? An audience mm-hmm. audience of strangers saying, 
you know, I break into tears for no apparent reason um, because of what's happened in my life. And he'd say a little bit about it. So if that happens, don't worry about it. I'm, I can still do what I'm doing. And just that statement opened up people sharing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not just about losses, you know, but in general, just sharing more deeply because he made himself vulnerable. That's not always an easy thing to do in the in the early days of grief because you're so vulnerable anyway, you know. But I thought it was a very magic way to, especially for, you know, we are, there are different social expectations for men and women still, and especially for a man to do that, to, to yeah. say, I'll probably cry in the course of this two hours. You know, uh, it seemed very groundbreaking to me or very revolutionary in a sense. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely true. I, I think that's probably, as I think about it, it's even scarier you know, if you're, if you have a colleague who's, who's male and they're crying and, you know, how do you, if you're, if you're not someone who's, who's had the experience, how do you know how to hold that, especially at work? Yeah. And, and how do you not think that's a problem? Because of course, that's a good thing <laughs> in my opinion. I uh, do. So we only have just a, a, a minute or so left, but I wonder if you have an example of of something you um, promoted in a workplace that you thought just worked magnificently that we could let people end with here? So I think one of my favorite examples um, to go back to this idea of supporting grieving employees um, came from the executive director of a nonprofit that I interviewed. And she said that one of the things she learned from from working with people who suffered tremendous losses was that she said, you know, I learned to just let them express what they were feeling instead of trying to rush in to help. And she said, once I let them say what they needed to say, she said, I would follow with a single question, which is what does support look like for you? Oh my gosh, that is... If we could all just do that every time about everything, wouldn't that be a world? It would be. It would be. <laughs> thanks, thanks so much for being with me today, Margo. I've enjoyed the conversation. Oh, thank you, Cheryl. And go to ontargetconsulting.net out there uh, to find Margo and her work. Next week, I'll have Donna Kendrick to talk about her book, A Guide to Widowhood. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.